Welcome to Life, L-I-F-E, Luxury in Full Effect. I'm David Frangioni. I'm here with Justin Lee. And this is the show where we interview the people operating at the top of the luxury market. From entertainment, real estate, celebrity industries, and everything in between. Together, we'll hear their life stories and how they got to where they are today. Hello, everybody. This is David Frangioni. Welcome to Life, L-I-F-E, Luxury in Full Effect. My partner in crime, Justin Lee, is traveling the world today, so I'm flying solo, but we've got a great show. Very, very excited to have Glenn Gisler from Glenn Gisler Design. They're an award-winning Manhattan-based design firm, and they've been around a long time. They've done some amazing things, and I'm really excited to welcome Glenn to the show and learn more about him and have him share his life and experiences and art with you. So, Glenn, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. No, it's our pleasure. So, Glenn, let's start with, tell us a little bit about your story and the beginnings, how you found your passion in design. Because I think what you've taken and where listeners will learn during our conversation today is really fascinating and inspirational, actually. And so let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your story. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a curious story, but I guess all good stories are curious. When I was 13, in it would be the early 70s, like 1971, we were asked to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was the class hippie, 1971. And I sat on the table in the front of the room with patched jeans and my ever-growing long hair and said I wanted to be an interior designer. At and 13? At 13, <laughs> Wow, that's awesome. Now, and I said, you know, at the time I was thinking mellow lifestyle, hanging out, all this. And I had everything right about the balance between business and creativity, except that it was going to be a low-key lifestyle because that it's not. It's very, very busy. But it's a freaky thing to have made that declaration and then manifested in my life. It's almost like embarrassing because it's so weird. Well, what do you think? How? When you think back and it's amazing that you were able to, to see that at that age and declare it and then have it become actually what's happened in your life and at such a high level. And I can share with you a very similar thing happened with me, not quite as clearly spoken as you said in the classroom that day, but I never saw myself doing anything but music and then later on technology from an extremely young age. But in my case, it was going through a trauma as a kid and then having my parents somehow, some way introduce me to the drums. I don't remember. I was two years old at the time. I don't know if I asked for it or they asked or who knows. But what happened in your case? How did that happen? Well, I think that I've been fortunate to have a number of people in my life that have been inspirational. In this case, it probably was a family friend or a woman who became a family friend who was an artist she did some interior design, but not really the way I do it. And she was teaching, my mother was taking painting classes and I was taking Saturday classes from her. And she became kind of a family friend, but she's the only thing I knew that was kind of like an interior designer. And she was a big, bold personality and didn't live like anybody else. And I found that to be really inspirational. And I think back now to that kind of impact. I'm still in contact with her, if you can believe it. I mean, that's going to be 62. So it's almost 50 years. I'm still in contact with her. And she was like a permission grantor. It was okay to be a boy and be creative and follow what was interesting. And I think that was really sort of the outside support to becoming well, who I... Well, somewhere in this, it's in your bloodstream. 
if your mom's painting, there's creativity in the family genes and somewhere it's in your bloodstream. Sure, sure. Well, my father's family is from central Sweden and we have paintings by that my father did, his father did, and paintings that his grandfather did from central Sweden. And so there was creativity. It was never like a full-time artist sort of thing, um, right, but, right. but it was, there was creativity. <laughs> so where are we when you're 13? What, where are you living? A suburb of Milwaukee near Lake Michigan. And, oh, okay. So Midwestern. Yeah, yeah. So how's the trek start there and get to New York <laughs> pretty soon after? Well, well, I graduated high school early, then took a, a year off, and then I started college at uh, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which was a state school and great state school. And I was in uh, fine art, interior design, history, sociology, all this stuff. I found it fascinating. But after a couple of years there, they told me I could create my own degree and I thought five years, I would have a BS in general related arts from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I just, it's, I'm not feeling it. So it was a great experience. But then I transferred to a work study program in architecture in Boston. Uh, because oh, I, that's where I'm from. Where to uh, in Boston? The Back Bay. It's now called the Boston Architectural College. It's a work study program where you work full time for architects during the day and take classes at night. And it okay. was, I moved into the deep south end, which at the time was kind of a no man's land full of artist lofts. And it was kind of the era of new wave. And it was a lot of students from the museum school and punk bands and new wave bands. And uh, I remember it well. Right. <laughs> so, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I realized that as interesting as it was, it wasn't a great program. And then after four years in college, I told my parents I wanted to transfer again. And this time I got accepted to the Rhode Island School of Design, which I'd heard about as a sophomore in high school but my parents had never heard of. And now when I think about it in hindsight, it's the smallest state in the union and an art school in that state. It, and if you've never heard of it, it, ha it has no meaning. But in fact, it's a magnificent school. Um, yeah, I've heard of it. It's, it's a great school. Inspired. But now, wait a second. When you're in Boston doing the architecture, are you working for an architect as an intern as well or is it strictly yeah. cool? Yeah. No, full-time for an architect and then going to school at night. So it was okay. a very, it was and, a very intense you, program. And now, this is your first taste of real life working for an architect. Correct. Right? That's a whole nother lane. Even though they're related, people are interior designers, people are architects. It's a little more unique to have someone be both. So right. you're starting out with the architect and what's happening as you're like seeing what real life architect world well, is like. Sure right. The speed and the complexity, the detail, especially if they're doing high-end work. Right. Well, I guess what I should do is go back a step or so is that I was very involved in historic preservation starting at, let's say, age 18. And historic preservation in the Midwest, because the buildings aren't as old, it's not as rigorous, or especially in the 70s, was not such a rigorous and well-known practice. And so as I got more involved in historic preservation, it seemed like a good way to sort of bring design and interior design together. And the further I got into that, people said, you really should be, you should study architecture because I was interested in the, what they used to call adaptive reuse, reusing existing buildings for new purposes, which that was an avant-garde idea in the seventies. And now it's quite normal. And so, because I was actively involved in historic preservation in Milwaukee and Madison, and then Boston is such a historic city, it seemed what a great place to go. And it was magnificent for that. 
but I still really was focused on wanting to do interiors, not buildings, not new buildings from scratch. So it was fantastic being in Boston, but the program wasn't great. Right, right. And for our listeners out there who have not researched Glenn at this point, you should know that the whole preservation of entities, just of... Historic buildings, right. Yeah, I mean, that whole lane, that's become a major, major passion in your life. And so it started really early, almost simultaneous in a way with the interior design. Sure. They might have come at different times in your life, but I think the seeds were there early because they happened almost concurrently and at a very, very young age because you're still doing it, but you've taken it to a very high level, which means that the seeds were there and it was something that was important and you've stuck with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's jump forward to New York and starting your firm And when things really start getting into the action starts really happening as far as how Glenn Gistler will start impacting the world with his design ideas and goals. Well, I probably should dial it back a little bit in that I was, as a transfer student, I was in Providence for three years and it was a tremendous experience, but I would, I came to New York during summers and had uh, summer jobs working for interior designers. So when I graduated college with a degree in architecture and fine arts, I already had a job waiting for me in New York. So I moved to New York, moved into the center of Soho, literally to Spring Street and West Broadway in the center of Soho in 1984, which it was the epicenter of the contemporary art world, and worked for a, what I would, I guess we call Architectural Digest 100 interior designer. And I worked for him for a couple of years. And then I worked for what's now a global architect named Raphael Vignoli and helped him set up interiors department in his architecture office. And then I was asked by a friend who was a young fashion designer who was just sort of getting going if I would design a showroom for him. And his name was Michael Kors. Oh, nice. So that was 1987. He was, I think shortly before that, he was sleeping under the table in his studio. This was, Michael's now an extraordinarily successful fashion designer. But in those days, it wasn't quite hand to mouth, but he was really starting out. So I quit my job. And that was my first client is doing 10,000 square foot project, but my budget was $200,000 all in. Wow, in Manhattan. In Manhattan. And and this ends up being Michael Kors' first showroom then, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Wow. Yeah, no, to say he's successful is an understatement, right? Right. What a moment. And so did you have a feeling at that time that you were dealing with like a future Armani, Versace, Gucci kind of heavyweight? Or did you see it? Yeah, he's a remarkable talent and he was earmarked for success from a very, I mean, the first store he ever sold clothes to was Bergdorf Goodman. Oh, wow. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, no. he, he never, he never went anywhere. He went bigger or went home. Exactly right. And I learned a lot. I worked with him intermittently for a long time, doing a number of residences for him and learned a lot about how to navigate. He skipped college. He went to one semester of FIT and then basically started his business. And so that learning by the seat of your pants, which there's pros and cons to leaping into the fire at an early age. I Now I look back and I was 30 years old at the time and I think, what was I thinking? <laughs> you know? I mean, I think I had $5,000 and that was it. And you quit your job to help what now is an easy person to say, let's work for, but then was a gamble. Right, right. And on top of it, 
you don't know how any of this is going to play out. Now, the interesting thing is you end up having a client that because, I mean, what Michael's done, as anybody in that world has done, is you either fail miserably and you stay virtually hand to mouth or you hit a giant home run and end up being an extremely wealthy person. I mean, it's kind of an all or nothing proposition with what that world looks like, as you know. And so he made it. So now you have a client that goes from hand to mouth to you're doing multiple residences and he's all of a sudden not so limited by his choices for luxury. Well, truth be told, I'm not doing work with Michael anymore. He's so global that he's got a whole coterie of people, many of them in-house doing things for him. But he was a very, very important early client and a long-term friend and really a compatriot in terms of how to navigate as ambitious a young designer in New York City. So how many years did you end up working for Michael? I mean, when you do jobs like that, like yourself, I've worked with so many clients that people have heard of. Unless you work in that world, it's hard to understand why changes are made and why you're not with somebody forever. But when you're in that world, you realize that 10 years is a very, very long time with that clientele because they're moving at such a fast pace and the kind of growth that in a lot of cases they experience brings them resources, other clicks of people, ideas. Plus we're all, as we get older and more mature, we're all changing styles anyway. So it's not that uncommon for people to have transitions. 10, 15 years at a time. But as clients, we want to work with our clients as long as we can stay inspired and sure. value. So how long were so you? So I think Michael? I worked with Michael about 20 years. Yes, that's a really long time. And that's yes. awesome. So then that gets you started. And here you are, Glenn Gistler Design Incorporated is in business. So what's the journey kind of look like from (laughs) there? Because it's a fascinating story so far. I mean, all people in the world to have as your first major client and test your future and whether you end up going out of business and back to work for somebody or take the path that you ended up creating for yourself and taking and succeeding. What happened? Well, I would tell you that for myself, and I can also tell you that from Michael's point of view, there's ups and there's downs. I happened to, when I started my business two weeks later, was a big economic event called Black Monday, which I was so naive about business. I thought it's not going to affect me because none of my clients work on Wall Street, but the stock market dropped 30% in one day. And so my startup period was very long. (laughs) And that'll test you right from the beginning. That's the universe's way of saying, are you really in that? (laughs) Or, or Or are you just looking for a quick hit? And when the times get tough, you get going. Right. Well, I persevered. I persevered. A couple of years later, the New York Times used to run on Thursday. They had a section called Home, and they used to focus on design. And I had a, met one of the editors, showed her three projects, one which was Michael's showroom, my apartment in Soho, and another friend's apartment I had done. And she said, okay, this is great. We'll shoot pictures on Monday and we'll run it next Thursday. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so she shot all these pictures, ran this huge story. There were, it was like five square feet in the New York Times. There were seven Two years fo- into business, you're about to get a feature like that. No publicist. How do you get something like that? No, you can't. Uh, there were seven pictures, three of which had me in them. And I thought, oh my God, I've made it. But that's not what happened. I got one phone call from that interaction, one, aside from friends calling and saying, that's great. And did that phone call lead to business or was it just a long shot? Well, 
well, it was the woman said, I'm calling for Mr. Ian Schrager. He's in the hotel business. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, you think? <laughs> no, this was right after they did the Royalton. Right okay. after they did the Royalton. And they were just a couple of years. He and Steve Rebell were just a couple of years out of prison at that point and uh, for tax evasion from Studio 54. Yep. And so I went up and I met with him and he wanted me to work on a beach house in Southampton that he and Steve Rebell had just bought. Okay. They were, so anyway, I worked on, I worked you on that the job. Did you do it? I did. Awesome. Uh, Another but, uh, iconic client, whether it's a big job or a little job, it's a fascinating a right, right. moment was, in your career. No, it was totally fascinating. And then from him, Steve died shortly thereafter, maybe a year or so later. And I called him at one point and wanted to see how he was doing because they were extremely close. And he wanted to know, he talked really fast. He wanted to know if I'd heard from Kelly. And I said, you know, Kelly, no, who's Kelly? And he said, Klein, you know, Kelly Klein. <laughs> it was like, no. And so then Kelly Klein called me. And then I did work for Calvin and Kelly, their beach house. Again, they were, these were small jobs, but it was an inside of yeah. unbelievable world. Of, right. And, no, and, this is the depths of the high, high end. It's only word of mouth. The right. fact you got the call from the Times says a lot. It really means that that article was able to really give the viewer, the reader a sense of your talent, your passion, your spirit, because normally those, I call them ads, but articles, whatever, they're great for resumes and presentations and proof of concept that you have a career and that you've done some cool things. But as you shared in the story, they rarely deliver many leads, if any. Right. The fact that you got that one, and of all people, is a serious one, that opened the door for the opportunity. I think one thing I want our listeners to really get from this is that, you know, you're hearing these fascinating, interesting stories that Glenn's worked with colorful, iconic characters, but there's so much work that goes into it. And there's so much result that has to be accomplished because if you're with Michael Kors for 20 years and Ian is referring you to Calvin and these kinds of things are happening, you're not just getting hired. You're actually delivering the goods. And right. Part of that is your inherent talent that you started to feel inside and want to bring to the world as early as 13 years old. And part of it has to be work ethic and homework. So what are some of the things you think were the clients were seeing in you that gave them the confidence and the interest in saying, hey, I, this is the guy for me? Well, I think that as it relates to Ian, when they did the Morgan Hotel and then they did the Royalty and they were working with cutting edge people in the world, those people had been originally supported by the New York Times. So the same writer uh, who had done brought those two people to America was the one that did the story. So it was kind of, I'd been given a seal of approval. Yeah, you were and, the chosen one, man. Right. <laughs> Wow. So, so um, and with Ian, he's into fast results, very fast results. I had six weeks and a modest by $50,000 to produce some results that it was hair raising, but I produced the results. And then I got this call from Calvin and, Cal well, actually from Kelly. And then they wanted a version of something I'd done for Ian, which was dining room chairs. One day when I write the story of my career, there'll be a chapter called Cheap Chairs for the Rich and Famous. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, because I did chairs of a particular sort for Michael Kors, Ian Schrager, and Calvin Klein, all within about a two-year period, which were very inexpensive slip-covered 
chairs. They were dining chairs, but they were done kind of en masse. And so I did that for Calvin and Kelly. And then they said, well, you've got some more work to do. Could you come out to the house? All right. So it's like, okay, great. Can you come out on Saturday? So sure, I'll come out on Saturday. And then I hang up the phone and it's like, what am I supposed to wear to go to Calvin Klein's house on a Saturday in the Hamptons? It's like the talk about fashion pressure. Yeah, right. So, and I well, thought I would know what brand to wear. Right. Well, well, yeah, I guess. So I thought I was just meeting Kelly and I got out to this house, which was a very well-known house. It was the second to last house on a dead end road on the ocean and Georgia Capond. And at the time, you know, they were in like maybe $15 million, which in those days was unheard of sum of money. And so I thought I was just meeting Kelly out there. So I go out there and I met by the butler and there's fires burning in all the fireplaces and she's gorgeous and relaxed and the house is beautiful. And she starts walking me around and we walk upstairs to the second living room. And thankfully he was on the phone, but there's Calvin Klein and he casually waves to me and I'm like not prepared for this. And so I would say that the thing that Calvin and Kelly liked was the fact that I was unpretentious, you know, that I was not trying to be somebody who I wasn't. So Calvin came in and he said, you know, he knew high-end interior designers from all over the world. And they all said, oh, he's Calvin Klein. So we'll sell him some really expensive stuff. And Calvin said, this is the beach. I want this. No. So he had came in and said, oh, hello, my name's Calvin. I'm thinking to myself, well, duh. You know, right. But, right. And I said, well, I'm Glenn. And he said, well, you know, I want you to understand that this is the beat. And I said, well, you know, I'm from Wisconsin. And in Wisconsin, people have lake houses. And in lake houses, they've got the mismatched furniture and the mismatched clothes. And probably the silverware doesn't match and the dishes doesn't, don't match. But that's part of the charm. I said, but you're Calvin Klein. So your dishes are going to match, <laughs> but I get it. You want something that isn't trying too hard. You want something that's kind of easy. And so I ended up doing a fair amount of work on their house. So, and again, it was really fascinating to kind of be in that world and see how they navigated. Well, yeah, I mean, that's for sure. What did you end up doing besides uh, dining room chairs? Uh, I, they had bought a 18th century four post bed from the Andy Warhol sale when after Andy Warhol died. So they didn't want it more they had been done decorated kind of traditional and I did it much more kind of out of Africa, linen-y. I did curtains in a number of rooms. I just did some stuff in the upper living room. I did a whole slew of things that were finishing things out in the house within their point of view. Well, and it sounds to me like this is your meeting clients and you're basically, you're there to serve, right? It sounds like your approach before any preconceptions or any kind of sales pitch, if you will, that whether it's intended or not, beyond any of that stuff, your main goal is to serve. So right. if that's something that requires, like you just described, these little one-off projects, but they're extremely important to Calvin and Kelly, right? Right? They're not entire apartments or homes where you're going shopping for 15 or 20 rooms and right. figuring out paint, wallpaper and carpenters and all that. But still, if you can serve and you can pull this off for them, then it sounds to me like mission accomplished. It's true. Well, even today, I would assert that interior design, ultimately, you have to make selections on furniture and all the things that are the results, but you've got to isolate what the problem is. Here's a living room. How many people are going to sit in here? What is the intended? When is it used? What time of year? What's the li intended lifestyle? What's, how do you want people to feel? How do you want to feel? And so you isolate the problem and solve the problem. So that's really where the service component is. And 
people don't even necessarily understand all of the criteria and questions that go into isolating the problem and then finding the solution. And then right. you've got to do it with panache and make it look easy. Well, yeah, well, without a doubt. And you're just describing one room. You right. know, when you look at the size of people's homes, especially today, and especially throughout places like Manhattan and the Hamptons, there's a lot of rooms. <laughs> there's right. a lot of spaces that have to cohesively be designed. So you have done a lot of renovations. You've worked on significant New York properties. You work as the go-to guy on a project where you'll oversee on behalf of the client all of the associated components to this architecture, right. landscape, et cetera, et cetera, Give, you know, which means that you have to have a strong project management side to you or you won't be able to, right. to handle all of that for the client. So I have to ask, since my world is technology, what are you finding in the technology world of clients' needs? in all of these projects that you're doing? Because especially if you're doing renovations and the, and the properties are older and you're bringing them up to date, technology is something that in some cases, and you can tell me whether it's some or a lot, there wasn't even technology in existence when it's, these homes were originally <laughs> done. So now you, you not only have it available, but you have it really as a key thread of fabric in most people's lives. So now here you are in the home. So how's that? What's the story with that in your career? Well, thankfully, it's the 21st century and wires are less important. <laughs> so, so Wi-Fi... Spoken like a true designer. Uh, right? <laughs> no, I mean, look, there was a certain point where the only way you could get the TV or the stereo or whatever was to rip out everything and wire, hardwire everything. And, right, and right. And there's Apple, more wireless options than there have ever been. Right. But what are you finding the clients... Like, for instance, are you finding the clients want lighting control across the board? Even if they're not techie, what you can give them with setting up the ability to store and recall scenes, especially in larger right. homes with complex lighting setups, is that kind of a hundred percent, like, I got to have lighting control. I got to have motorized window treatments, like beyond the standard sound and picture, which everybody knows is, right. is part of technology. And that varies depending on the needs of the client, but what has become more de facto standard that you've well, seen? Well, <laughs> one of the criteria that I use around technology is, can my mother operate it? Yeah, well, <laughs> so, that's an important criteria. Right. So that just because you can doesn't mean you should. And a lot of people, aspirational folks, want to have all the bells and whistles, but the bells and whistles require maintenance, update, and there's challenges. And so I honestly try and keep things as simple as possible to make it usable for more than just a techno wizard like you. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> but, but, you know, to me, the techno wizardry is entirely based on how easy the systems are to use because it's one thing if I'm building something for, if I'm building a recording studio or a digital facility, right? That whole goal is based around technical trained people utilizing it. When you go into the home world and you're creating technology for residential use, and even in high-end like corporate boardrooms and sure. things like that, it's the exact opposite. It's been a great learning experience for me as, uh, as an example, as an integrator, because if I had only done pro, when I would go to do home, it would be a train wreck because it would be way too complicated and I wouldn't even have a frame of reference. And if I had only done home, when I went to do pro, 
it would have been way underserved because the tech guys would have been like, well, how do I patch this into that and route that into this and things that a, a residential right. person would never even think to do. So the two worlds, as much of behind the scenes as they might be connected at the user level, at the end user level, they're entirely different. And the ease of use that a system has is everything about how what I call good that system is. Now, that's the usability. The functionality that the usability will essentially implement is something that you would determine. I would work with someone like yourself on a project because there's always a client rep. And that person is essentially saying, here are the things we have to accomplish that this home requires. Besides easy to use television control, and easy to use sound playback so they can entertain or they're really into it, you know, a media room or a two-channel listening room or whatever, a theater. But besides that, there are needs. Like there's all kinds of different lighting going on. There's right. art lighting, there's fiber optic lighting, there's now EMX and LED lighting that has all kinds of color choices. And all of the recallability of that has a huge impact on when you turn the apartment over and right. you say, okay, here's my vision based on your vision and needs, Mr. and Mrs. Client. The technology is working for you, right? Well, like I said, I tend to keep things simple. Let's say I'm going into a living room. The audio is going to be controlled from your phone or your laptop or your iPad and the lighting predetermined scenes. I'm an ambiance guy. Part of what we do in my business is create ambiance. There's, okay. you know, and so the lighting changes during the course of a day and through the course of a year. And so I want to go into a living room and flip a switch and have the lamps go on and have the architectural lighting go on. But I want to be able to modulate the what's brighter and what's lower. So I put them on to even a simple like dimmer technology and show my clients how to adjust it because there's a notion of. I don't know. It's uh, I'm trying to think of like a fashion metaphor. There's party clothes, but they're not right for every party, you know? right? You know, right. so and the lighting for a dinner party or something that's smaller is different than it is for a blowout, fill the house with 200 people kind of party. So you so, have to have lighting control because there's no way for you to have that recallability without it. Well. I don't have lighting control. That's the irony. Ah. We, typ we typically don't. I, in so fact, how I, do you get the scenes to come back? I show the clients how to manage ambiance. And, ah, and, okay. And you know, they'll so literally just do it in real time. So in real time. Yeah. The application is, okay, I want the scene like this. And if you have to group lights, right? Because remember, they want the lamps at one level. They want this one at that level. Right. You'll just have a row of dimmers. Right. Okay. And, and my mother can control them too. Right, because it's that, you're not even dealing with keypads at that point. Right. And you right. know what the problem with keypads, too, is that typically they mount the keypads at the height of a light switch. So I wear glasses. If I don't have my glasses, I can't see the keypads. So then I'm down on my knees looking at the keypad. And sure, you don't sure, want the sure. keypad up at eye level because that's where you want your art. The other thing about this kind of technology is that you put it into your house and five years later, it's obsolete. They're not servicing it or it's updated or it's got to be... It's not you just do it once and it's good forever. It's just not. Well, that's a good point. And as a technologist, we could get into that discussion in great depth, as you can imagine. And I think what's important to note for that is that 
some areas of technology, what you just said is 100% true, especially in the video world where the changes are often. I mean, 4K, 8K, 12K, 1K, you've got this stuff is changing all the time. In the lighting control, overall control world, where you have motorized window treatments, you have lights, you have temperature, you have security cameras and alarm and fountains and just what we'll call non-video control. The periods of time, and I'm just saying this so our listeners are educated in it as much as they can be, those technologies tend to have much, much longer life cycles. And you tend to have closer to 10 years than two or three or four Whereas video will turn every year or two. doesn't mean you have to change. You know, you can still, I have have clients that have TVs for 10 years. And even though they're behind the times, technologically speaking, they're very happy with what they experience with it. But as far as functionality and what things can do, you get much longer periods from the overall control items. But it's no different than anything else. Technology, even though it looks different, it's really the same where if you have If whatever your needs are, there are clients that have to change technology every few years because they're so crazy about it that they just always like, they're like me and they want, you know, the most cutting edge, the fastest, the best image, the best sound. And there are clients that have technology for function's sake and it lasts and lasts and lasts and they're fine with it. They don't care that there's a newer lighting keypad or there's a newer television out that's got a sharper image. They're happy. And so I think there's a balance and it really depends on the client's needs. Well, but it's, you know, you talk about video, audio. I still have a regular VCR, a DVD, and a European VCR for old videotapes that are European movies. And so, because I don't want to get rid of them because, you know, they say, oh, everything's going to be online. It's not all online. Yeah, it's it's true. That's why I have a DVD server. I have so much great content on there. As a drummer my whole life, I've burned a lot of drum DVDs that I own. They're legitimately owned, but I have a server that legitimately was purchased to store them. It's all above the table, of course. The only way I would consume content. And But it's incredibly reliable to just be able to not have to dig through the DVDs, but it's DVD. Right. It's it's three generations of video ago. That was really the king after LaserDisc and VHS, as you described. And here I am a cutting edge technologist, but I watch content from that server that is not available anywhere else. Right. And I love it because it's about what you get from it. It's not about the device itself. Right. It's the content. It's the experience the emotion. These are just tools and vehicles for delivering that. And yeah, if you want the highest quality, then you're concerned with what resolution, et cetera, et cetera. But it all comes down to the content. So Glenn, what's the future look like? With all you've done and with the goals that you've achieved and the great success that you've had, what's next? Well, (laughs) that's a good question. Well, we're always seeking new, exciting projects. It really sort of doesn't matter where they are. We're about to start a project in Boulder, Colorado for some clients that we've done some other projects for. That that will be a ground-up house. We did a project for them in Maine uh, a couple of years ago, which is a kind of summer house for them. So I'm really always looking for interesting, complex challenges, both interesting people and complex challenges to try and create gracious homes. Conceptually, what we do is to create what I call the context for their future to take place. And so their, their life goals 
whether it's greater sense of peace of mind, entertaining more, entertaining less, spending more time with friends and family, having autonomy, you know, all these things is that to try and, you know, a conversation that starts today, it actually may take a couple of years for that actually to get built out and manifest. And in terms of it being woven into their lifestyle, it might be three or four or five years. And so conceptually, that's part of isolating the problem of interior design is finding out, trying to cause the future to happen the way they want it to. Well, that's awesome. And that's insightful. And would it be fair to say in pursuit of design alchemy, wink, wink? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, because it doesn't, it doesn't, um, the point of, for me about alchemy is that going back to the medieval period, they're always trying to sort of make precious metals out of nothing. But what we do is really create ambiance. It's a mix of the good and the not so good, the extraordinary. And it's the way you put all those things together that creates something that's special and memorable. It's not just a room full of restoration hardware, which looks like a restoration hardware showroom. It's actually something that's distinctive and personal and has a story. And that's, I think, what people find satisfying about the project. Well, based on the success you've had and the great, great the publications that you've appeared in, the awards that you've won, you've accomplished that in pursuit of design alchemy. Glenn Gistler, what a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for sharing your story and your talents. For everybody out there, check out Glenn Gistler's work and tell everybody where they can find you, Glenn. Gistler.com, G-I-S-S-L-E-R.com. I'm active on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, and and Pinterest. I've got about 22,000 posts on Pinterest. So Oh, wow. So there's someone who really will <laughs> get some clear understanding of, of, all, of what you do actually looks like now that they understand the mind behind exactly, it. And exactly. What's your handle on all these? Gissler will get you to most of them. At yeah. Glenn Gissler, Gissler Design. You know, I, I, right. you can run, but you can't hide. I'm going to find you. I love it. G-I-S-S-L-E-R is how you spell Gissler, everyone. Again, Glenn Gissler, thank you very much. David Frangioni, Justin Lee, life, luxury, and full effect. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Head on over to luxuryandfulleffect.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover more content. Until next time. 